Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. On days like today, ask yourself, in the time I've been on the throne, what have I actually achieved? This country was still great when I came to the throne. All that's happened on my watch is the place to fall apart. It is a duty. Hello and welcome to the first of three episodes of Still Watching The Crown. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. Because this is a show about the Royals and we're Vanity Fair, we decided to just like blow the doors off the joint and get a full house in here to talk about the crown. Uh, we have Katie Rich, deputy editor of Vanity Fair. Hello, Katie. Hi, VanityFair.com. But you know, you can, you can increase, inflate my title as according with the Royals. It is my investiture today. Uh, and senior features, uh, writer. I believe I got that title correct, right? Uh, Julie Miller. Hello, Julie. Hi. I'm so excited to be here. Also, Royals expert, Julie Miller. We should say that for Don't the build job. it up. You can end with that <laughs> if I perform well here. So Julie, uh, is our, uh, our Royals, uh, expert here. She has done a lot of great work around the crowd previous seasons. She's got some great stuff coming up for this third season. So we wanted to have her on to talk about uh, some of the true stories behind some of these more fictionalized, sensationalized versions of the royal family. Um, this is a preview episode. So this episode is dropping before the crown itself drops. It's dropping on a Sunday, which is super weird for Netflix, but that is what they des- have decided to do. So we are 
just basically getting you ready, getting you excited, getting you caught up. It's been a while since season two happened. We got a bunch of new actors. So uh, this is your crown refresh. Um, Julie, do you want to tell the folks listening sort of what time period we are covering uh, this season of The Crown? So there isn't actually that much of it. There wasn't that much of a time jump between season two and season three. Season three jumps ahead just a bit to cover 1964 to 1977, but they're going to cover a lot of ground in that period between the breakdown of Princess Margaret's marriage, uh, Camilla and Charles meeting and kind of the tertiary affair, the love triangle, love rhombus, love square. What are we going to call that? <laughs> the love diamond. Oh, I love love diamonds with Princess Anne and Andrew Parker Bowles. And then whatever happens to Queen Elizabeth during this period. <laughs> like to me, the most exciting part, sorry, is the Margaret of it all. Yeah. I mean, I think I wrote in my review of, of season two, Sonia Soraya has reviewed season three for us that like, it's sometimes I feel like the show should be about Margaret. But that's a, that's a major challenge of the crown is to try to make a character like Elizabeth, who is so like plain and, um, you know, dowdy and Unknowable. whatever, you know, like, uh, a, a, an interesting figure and a big thing that they've done this season to hopefully uh, accomplish that is cast Olivia Coleman as the three years later <laughs> Queen Elizabeth from Claire Foy. Um, Richard, what do you think of, of this choice, Olivia Coleman? How does her performance align with what Claire Foy was doing? Uh, just to give people like a preview. Well, I think that the thing that uh, Coleman unfortunately lacks is the element of surprise. I mean, she just won an Oscar. We've been watching her in things like Broadchurch and, you know, uh, The Lobster before before her she broke out really big with the favorite um whereas claire foy like pretty much unless you'd seen um wolf hall the the pbs thing about like henry the eighth you probably probably most people in america at least didn't know who she was so she kind of was young elizabeth whereas now it's more about watching an actress we know playing a version of elizabeth still i realized until just a few years ago that I'd never heard any of the royals' voices. Like, I, I had to, like, Google, like, what does Prince Harry sound like, you know? So it still, like, feels <laughs> new to me, but I think she has just a harder road to toe for that reason and also for the reason that, like, the first two seasons are about a young queen tr- trying to figure out how to be queen, and now we're really mired in, like, the middle era of her queendom when, like, things are happening, but there's less of a linear storyline for her to play, I guess. So that's 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 difficult. But I think, I mean, she pulls it off. And disappointingly, unlike in the favorite, Olivia Coleman's queen doesn't get to have like this love affair with Emma Stone. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Which the real queen would have been Elizabeth against history. Did. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I think the one thing that I will say, uh, you know, without spoiling anything of the third season is that, um, I think something Claire Foy did really well is, you know, Queen Elizabeth is strong and people underestimate her and she like endures and all sorts of stuff like that, but she, doesn't seem like extremely sharp, do you know? And I don't think the real Queen Elizabeth is extremely sharp. She's like, she's smart enough, but she's not like really sharp. But I think Olivia Coleman has a hard time not playing a character, you know, playing a character that doesn't seem have that, you know, 
wit about her. Does that make sense at all? Yeah. And there's a couple moments where she does get to do that. Like I'm thinking uh, later in the season when she kind of gets in, um, gets involved in Charles's personal life to, uh, I think we can say the historically disastrous effect. Uh, and then she has a couple scenes with, um, we're going to talk about the people who are new in the cast this year, but Charles Dance is there. Uh, Tywin Lannister is playing Lord Mountbatten, who is Philip's uncle. And she has kind of a great steely scene with him. So you can kind of see her drawing on those reserves, but like her whole point, the whole point of the queen is that she has to hold back and she says as much to Charles later in the season. Well, yeah, I mean, like just, you know, cause at the, the end of season two, Elizabeth's arc was sort of just like, I have to become the, the crown. I have to just kind of renounce self much in the way that Elizabeth the first does at the end of uh, the Cape Blanchett movie. It's just like, I am now, I, I am now England. Like I am not, you know, um, and, and so she's kind of, you know, seated over a lot of her purse, her individual personality by the time season three starts, which is maybe a little dramatically inert, uh, which is why I think, you know, Julie and I and, and other people will turn to the Margaret stuff and the Charles stuff and be like, okay, there's some real heat. Um, and yet you still have to keep returning to, to Elizabeth because she's the, the, she's the crown. She's the center of the show. Right. I also felt like in the first two seasons, Elizabeth was a little bit, there was eager. She wanted to prove herself. And in season three, she's a little bit maybe more passive. She kind of resigns some of the control to people around her, including Philip. Let's talk about Philip real quick. So we, we go from Matt Smith to Tobias Menzies, who people might know from Outlander or Game of Thrones or a million other things. He's a great actor. Um, but The Crown has always been more interested in Philip than I've ever been interested in <laughs> Philip. This is historically true. Um, Katie, Katie, what do you think of, of the season three treatment of Philip here? I'm like, I, I think I'm maybe a little bit more interested in Philip than you are, even though a lot of times he shows up and you're like, oh my god, this guy again. And last, uh, I think in season two, they did a lot with his relationship with Charles um, and kind of showing how he's trying to like mold Charles as like a tough guy the way that he is and um, there's not really that inner interfamilial dynamic um, there is one big Philip episode this season that it might be skippable in some way for nothing into Philip but I do think has some rewards to it as you kind of watch him grappling with middle age um, and I think something that becomes really evident in the season as a whole is like when, when you start focusing more on Charles and Anne and just how like weird and damaging this way of growing up is and how Philip and Elizabeth are of this generation where they were like told that this is the way to raise children and this is the way to be parents and Charles and Anne are kind of like wait a second why are you doing this to us and I think Philip is kind of an important part of that for how cranky and withholding he is um, but I do like Tobias Menzies in it and there's a couple of moments in the season where he and Elizabeth kind of relate to each other as a as a married couple more than just these monarchs and, and I like those you like watching the two of them together even if philip is still kind of a pain in the ass all right which brings us to margaret uh and i'm gonna let richard and julie <laughs> talk about who's playing margaret and why they're so excited <laughs> helena bottom carter steps in uh for vanessa kirby uh to play margaret and helena has already given incredible interviews about how she's kind of channeled spoken to the ghost of princess margaret to get approval to play her Vanessa Kirby was, uh, when I spoke to her, very heartbroken that she didn't get to play Margaret during this period of her life, which wasn't happy, but it was very dramatically full and that her relationship to Lord Snowden is absolutely crumbling. Lord Snowden maintains a career as a photographer throughout his royal marriage and is often about traveling, carrying on uh, with other women. And Margaret, you know, her kids are off with a nanny. Her husband's out and away, so she's. we see her through her darkest period of time. She's drinking too much, smoking too much. Yeah, I mean, she she was a famous mess, and, and, and oh. all the drinking and smoking is what ultimately killed her. Um, and 
I think that where this show's jump from two to three suffers the most isn't in the casting change with, um, you know, from Kirby to Bonham Carter, because I think they're both great. I miss Kirby's energy a little bit, but um, it's more that, like, she there's a huge jump in like the style of her life in a way. Like we saw, like, like, I don't know. They're just, they, they just seem like two very different people. Whereas right. Elizabeth seems to exist more in a continuum. Um, mm. But, uh, but it's still fascinating. And I, what I think I like about this version of Margaret versus the younger one that we've seen in the previous two seasons is that she was like famously not a nice person and especially loved lording her royal status over like common people. Like she would apparently like show up to the opera late and make everyone stand up and like acknowledge her when she entered the theater. I think the opera would sometimes have to stop or at least wait until she got there to start. (laughs) Like she would do shit like that, which is so funny. And like, there's a scene later in the season that I'm sure we'll get into where like she, you see a little bit of that, like how she just treats like people who work at a shop. Um, (laughs) And I think bottom Carter is of course like great at that you know um and so it's it's a kick to see even though you know that like driving all that is like this like completely like booze soaked you know angst really right because she has all the privileges all of the good fortune around being a royal but without any of the responsibilities and the season really leans into even the fashion she wears these incredibly like colorful silk what are they? Caftans. At one point, she wears a full fur by the pool. <laughs> yeah, like it yeah. lives up. The glamour lives up. So we've got Helen Bottom Carter as Margaret. We've got Ben Daniels as uh, her husband Tony. They're kind of doing like a um, who's afraid of Rich- uh, Richard Burton, right. Liz Taylor sort of thing, right? Um, we've got Charles Dance as Mountbatten, um, who was played by Greg Wise. Um, in the, so it was a hard three years, uh, to go from Greg Wise <laughs> to Charles Dance, but, but, but Charles Dance is bringing that, like, Tywin Lannister energy to the Mountbatten role, which is definitely always fun in a castle. So, uh, we've got Marin Bailey as the queen, as the new character playing the, the, the queen mother. And then we've got my favorite royal hot mess, uh, which is Edward VIII, uh, aka David, uh, played by this time around by Derek Jacobi and Wallace played by Geraldine Chaplin. Um, Edward VIII is the, uh, the, the person who abdicated the throne and it is why Elizabeth's father took the throne and they've all decided that's what killed him and that's why Elizabeth is queen. Um, he, he is my favorite villain of of the crown but sympathetic figure sometimes at the same time uh julie do you have any like strong uh edward and wallace feeling i think one of my favorite scenes i think it was season two involved them it was the amazing montage of edward and wallace they were like dressing their dogs up they were do you remember this Mm -hmm. it was a montage of just their, their life without any sort of responsibility or privilege. Um, I wanted more of this. We get to see a little glimpse into Edward has an interesting relationship with Charles. Um, but to me, it doesn't last as long as I'd like it to. Yeah, I think it's also a little awkward that I think it was season two when they kind of dive into like the fact that like David and Wallace were like maybe sort of Nazi sympathizers. Right. Like, like, and yeah. then we have this version, which is older, you know, you know, Derek Jacobi, this like beloved legend of British theater and film and television. Um, and it's a much more sympathetic look at him, which, you know, people contain multitudes. I understand that, but it's like the, this version of David seems to forget 
last seasons in a way well and also it's him at the end of his life so you kind of like yeah. have yeah. to feel a little sorry for him <laughs> i can kind of see how like alex jennings who played um edward in the first two seasons who's one of my favorite actors of all time he's just fantastic like i uh, there's no really beating what he did <laughs> with this character but yeah i could maybe see how at the end of his life he could be possibly gentle into this Derek Jacobi performance. Um, and that is, that is like the main, that's it mostly for the cast who was like characters we already knew, but they've been aged up. Um, we did meet a young Prince Charles and a young Anne, but they were, you know, they were kids. Now they're, you know, young teens. So we've got a bunch of like newcomers to the cast. Julie, do you want to talk about, I, I mean, I consider, the Charles and Anne, the breakout of the season. Do you want to talk about those those two actors? Anne is played by Aaron Doherty. And after seeing her performance as Anne, because like Richard said, I didn't know much about her. I had no idea what she sounded like, how she spoke. I think that I need to go back and Anne might be my favorite British royal. She should have been this entire time. <laughs> wow. She's so no nonsense. She does not give. I don't know what we can say here. Much of a care, <laughs> yeah. much of a care about anything. <laughs> not a fig about it. <laughs> not a fig. <laughs> and I don't enjoy, Philip is not my favorite character, but to me, the scenes between Philip and Anne kind of brought this warmth to him because of all the four children. Anne, I think it's the most like him. She's very headstrong and again, no nonsense. So it was interesting seeing that dynamic between the father daughter dynamic between the two, but she was my MVP of the season. Yeah. Did you guys say the same? Uh, yeah. Except that it, uh, it wasn't me who mentioned this in our little email chain, but they don't, she got married during the time period that this season covers, and we don't see that in this season. Maybe we'll get it next next year or next to go around, right? Well, Joanna mentioned there's an even, even better, I think, Anne subplot I would have liked to see. There was an attempted kidnapping that happened in this time oh, period right. of yes. Anne. I was reading that in the Wikipedia, <laughs> and I was like, oh, that'll be a good episode. And then that episode doesn't show up, right? It doesn't show up. So, like, maybe they'll they'll fudge the timeline and do it in season four. but Or maybe we can imagine that that, like, her, her well, we'll get into it when we actually talk about the episodes. But, yeah, the the Anne use in this episode, I am I can only imagine that, given how good Aaron Doherty is in the role, that they'll only use her more uh, in season four. That's my hope. Katie, you want to talk about our Prince Charles? Oh, yeah. I mean, so you've got Josh O'Connor, who's playing Prince Charles. And uh, Richard, you had seen him in what before? He, You knew him, and he was kind of new to me. He is in a great new cult classic gay film from 2000, 2017 called God's Own Country, where he plays a really taciturn son of sheep farmers who, and then a Romanian migrant sheep herder, shepherd, moves to the, the, the farm. Uh, and you better believe they fall in love. And it's a wonderful, <laughs> like, sexy movie. And he's great in it. What's really cool about watching him in this is you realize, oh, this is like a, a trained theater actor. Like, he's playing such a different character from, from what he did in God's Own Country. So that, that mm. was a welcome kind of surprise, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I know him from the BBC series. Uh, I think it's called The Durrells in Corfu, which is based on... That is uh, such a British... Yeah. Like, you made that up. <laughs> No, it's, I mean, it's based on Jarell Jarell and his, and Lawrence Jarell and their family and how they actually like lived on this, you know, in Corfu. Um, but he is like the coolest, sexiest older brother of the family. Wow. And so to see him just like rein it all in and do this like very reserved, uh, timid, demure Charles performance is fascinating. Oh my God, yeah. I, I mean, his, his that. Charles 
Yeah, his Charles is so pitiable. And there's this whole central episode that we'll talk about where he has this tutor uh, to teach him how to speak Welsh who like really wants to hate him but feels sorry for him. And I think you you got a lot of sympathy for Charles in uh, the previous seasons where you watch him like going to this like vicious school and he's in the Navy and like doesn't really seem to like it. He really wants to be an actor. And then uh, you see him later fall in love with uh, Camilla, who's played by Emerald Fennel, who we can talk about a little bit. Um, and it's going to be really interesting to see how that character evolves because obviously Charles then really mistreats one of the most likable members of the royal family ever, Diana, who will show up next season. Um, but I like the way they're setting him up as this kind of like, you know, heavy is the head that wears the crown figure who has yet to become king, but has spent his entire life kind of waiting for it and not knowing what to do with it himself and maybe would rather like be a theater professor at Oxford or something. Yeah, I also love that they get into Charles and Anne's relationship, a relationship I had never really wondered about much, but I thought what they bring to that is very sweet because those are the only two people can, who can really understand, you know, each other's life experience in that yeah. verified position. And the only two people who are willing to show any sort of affection for each other, you know, <laughs> right, yes. like a, lo- a lot of the, you know, this, this is such, I think with Elizabeth as the guiding f- force in this, like this family is just so tactical and frigid and like, Withholding to a kind of sociopathic degree, it's like you could still <laughs> maintain Britain and like, I don't know, hug somebody, but like, I guess not. You know? <laughs> um, so it's nice to even see like, and give her brother a kiss on the cheek. You know, you're right. like, Somet-. I mean, I know they do that with, you know, their mom, but it's much it's a different kind of thing. Oh, I would love yeah. to do the crown like power rankings in terms of warmth or like <laughs> yeah. sexuality and who would just be at the bottom. The crown thermometer. <laughs> <laughs> it's just Margaret Margaret at the top. Well, we'd have to do it in self. Tony at so. the top. <laughs> Tony at the top. Tony on top. All right. Um, another like very key component of the crown, obviously, is the relationship between Queen Elizabeth, the crown that endures, and the various prime ministers who sort of butt up against her. So this season, we've got Harold Wilson, who is a labor, um, you know, PM, uh, played by Jason Watkins, who's a great, uh, another great British theater and character actor. I've seen him play a villain in a bunch of different things. And so it was fun to see him play something like a little, a little gentler. Um, but I, I like this clash of like, He's, he's labor, he's working class, he's got all this sort of stuff, and how he comes to view the crown and, and the way that, um, you know, he deals with the anti-royalists, um, in his party. Uh, Richard, did you have any, like, uh, thoughts about the politics of this season that we should be on the lookout for? Yeah, I mean, I think we tend to think of the 1960s, uh, and early to mid 70s as a very, I mean, cause we, all grew up here like in america in an american lens like hippies and anti-vietnam and you know gas lines and you know i you know various things like that um some version of that was also happening in the uk of course i think it's really interesting that you know given the political discourse we're having right now with uh, various politicians uh, either running for president or who are already in congress like that here was a prime minister of the united kingdom in the 1960s who was like i'm a socialist you know, mm-hmm. and like was just kind of blatant about it, had to obviously work with the queen to some extent, um, you know, and I think one of the one of the underlying things of this season kind of or I guess kind of in the background in a way, which is true of real British history, is these various calamities of the coal industry, you know, um, where there's one episode devoted entirely to a terrible accident that happened in, in Wales. Um, but you also have, you know, strikes and things like that. And I think that is a really interesting narrative about the sort of Britain industrial legacy in that time period um, that lit that us all the way to Billy Elliot, which is all that matters. 
<laughs> and um, Pride, that movie about the uh, oh, right. the, the striking workers yeah. in the gay pride and parade. Brassed yeah. off. <laughs> so the Crown, this Crown podcast is now just going to be us recommending gay British movies <laughs> that we like. <laughs> Um, Julie, tell me about my other new favorite royal, which is Princess Alice, uh, who comes to stay at the palace uh, this season. What a kick she is. And again, <laughs> again, Philip, I don't care. He doesn't fascinate me as much alone, but in the context of his other family members, uh, Princess Alice is his mother who has her own tragic backstory. And she comes to the palace. Philip does not want her there. But, she comes to the palace because Greek, Greece is in the middle. She lives in Greece, and Greece is in the middle of like a coup, right? Thank you for that historical context, which I cannot <laughs> speak of. But it was she, just like the craziest situation that led her there. Yes, and Queen Elizabeth, in a show of warmth, says, "This is your mother. She must come stay with us." Even though the family's shooting this royal documentary in attempt to get some sort of, uh, I guess, public favor. Um, so, so they invite her into the house and it's really fascinating to see her interact with the other family members and of all of them, Alice and Anne form this unlikely mischievous even relationship, mm-hmm. I would say. It's very sweet to, to watch. And she's, she's, an, she's, uh, the older version of the shame nun from Game of Thrones, right? <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> Except she, she's like, great. she just wants everyone to live their lives and be happy. She's and seen the air of her ways, Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the cigarette smoking she's is also, intense. Yeah. She's also a Mountbatten's sister, so there's like some nice Charles Dan stuff with her. Oh too. my god, they so, have yeah. this one. Their scene together might be my favorite of the whole season, and I, I don't know that we'll get into it in our um, later episodes, but yeah, they have a great moment uh, kind of midway through the season. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Luna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Uh, so that brings us to just the last couple things. First of all, we've got LBJ played by Clancy Brown. We'll be talking about that when we talk a bit more about Margaret. Um, so that's, that's what's going on in America. Uh, and then we've got the other two points on the, uh, the royal diamond, what the sexual diamond, whatever we're calling it. Um, the love diamond, uh, which is Camilla played by Emerald Fennel and Andrew Parker Bowles played by Andrew uh, Buchan of, uh, Broadchurch fame. So, uh, what do we think of these other, uh, like, We'll talk about this a lot uh, in a later episode, so we don't need to go like too far into it. But uh, does anyone have any strong feelings about the Camilla and Andrew Parker Bowles of it all? 
I wanted this. I wish they would have been able to devote like at least two episodes mm-hmm. to this relationship. And I think we get, do we get one? Maybe we get one and a half. Yeah, it's but pretty it's much one episode. Yeah, but they're using like, like one of the episodes is also about the death of David, you know, so like it, it doesn't get the primary focus, but we'll get more granular about it. But like, I didn't know this history at all. And I think that like, at least American viewers will be really eager to learn more about that. And, and while we get some of it, it's maybe not quite enough. Not quite enough. No, because that when we meet Andrew and Camilla, they had actually been in a relationship for five years. Wow. Which I didn't quite get when we watched The Crown. They don't really get into the, the backstory of the relationship. Um, again, we'll get more granular with it. But kind of looping back to the America of it all, there was another presidential moment that I wish The Crown would have dove into. And that was Nixon invited Charles and Anne over for this amazing... I say amazing because it would have made for amazing entertainment three-day visit in which he tried to set his daughter up with Charles. Mm. And he arranged this wild kind of itinerary. This is where Anne got her bad reputation. Like, the American journalist thought she was, like, uh, unfriendly, right? I think on the She didn't get a good rap with the press. They they didn't really take to her. But Nixon welcomed Charles and Anne to the White House for this unofficial visit over three days. And he was trying to play matchmaker with his 24-year-old daughter, Trisha, who had this huge crush on Charles. So he arranged this, like, royal picnic at Camp David. Mm -hmm. There was a swim at the British ambassador's residence. They went to see several innings of a Washington senator's baseball game. And the president insisted that Trisha sit next to Charles at every occasion. I just think that could have made for like an amazing montage even. You almost wonder if Peter Morgan is kind of protecting Anne. Maybe she's also his favorite royal. And he's like, I'm not going to show the kidnapping. I don't want to re-traumatize her. I'm not going to do the Nixon thing because that's a little silly. Like, like, I don't know. I think, Julie, you got to write this side you know, spin-off series. Right. It Queen really Anne, the, the young, Princess Anne, the young years, like, right. kind of like a Dickinson, like hip version of the past. Yeah. The, the, the Princess Anne diaries. I would watch it. Um, I wondered yeah, that about it, Camilla just because I, and we'll talk more about them later, but like the, it, it seemed to treat her vaguely enough and her motivations vaguely enough that I was like, does he know Camilla? Like, does he not want to like defame her? Cause she's obviously, you know, very much alive and, and working and her and Charles's story uh, has a lot more to tell. But I wondered if he was like, yeah, I, I don't want to get too much into her. Right. It was interesting to me because when you read the details about the relationship between Camilla and Andrew Parker Bowles, it seemed like Peter Morgan really treated this again, love diamond with kind of a softer touch than he could have because when you read the real life story it really does seem like charles was the the weakest link in this yeah. this this I don't know, whatever you want to call it i i would buy that i would buy charles is the weak link um that is a perfect tease for what is coming uh in our next couple episodes of still watching the crown um we are so lucky to have julie here because she is always comes through with the like the real story is this and it's even crazier um we will be diving into the that in later episodes but before we wrap up here i just wanted to ask you guys um if there's anything broadly about the crown that you liked in the previous seasons that you were hopeful for in this season or you feel like delivered, I will just say, uh, really quickly for my part, I don't think I realized until Richard and I covered succession earlier this year how much the crown also, a lot of the episodes feel like little mini plays. We talked about that a lot with succession and I, I feel like there are a bunch of episodes, almost all of them, um, because, um, 
The Crown is written by a playwright that feel like you could go see it in a theater. And, um, and I love that about The Crown. And then there's also just these, these recurring themes, uh, that they still find new ways to attack about who is suited to rule, who could have ruled instead of Elizabeth, uh, what would their reign have been like? And these ideas of like duty versus desire, that seems to be like the main thing, like dude, duty to the, to the realm versus getting to be an actual human being. Um, all of which I think season three delivered on Katie, do you have any, any thoughts on this? Yeah, I'm, I think all that family stuff is really juicy. And that's obviously something I love, too. And I, I do deep Wikipedia dives and then read all Julie's stuff to explain, uh, you know, all this crazy royal history to me. But something that I enjoyed that I maybe wasn't expecting as much is all the scenes with her and Harold Wilson, like all the prime minister scenes. P- Peter Morgan, I think, wrote a whole play just about her meetings with the prime minister. Like he's obviously fascinated in these moments, too. And uh, watching the labor government, who is not really that pro pro royalist, like trying to push him back on defending her and him paying, kind of being like, wait, I mean, we need the royals for some reason. Like that push and pull this season felt especially um, interesting to me. Yeah, I think something that might throw audiences because it threw me until I just sort of accepted it is that this season spans about 13 years, you know. Um, So and because like you two were saying, like the episodes are very contained. Each episode is its own little story. And then we move on to another epoch moment for for the 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 palace. Um, that, that can get a little frustrating. I think also that what can be frustrating for me is that I think the show's politics are a little fucked, like in terms of like, it's very royalist and very like in, in, you know, really invested in what the crown means and all that stuff. And I think that a lot of British people I speak to are like, why do you watch that show? It's so, it's so bad. Um, I, I understand that, but I think what I think is really interesting that, that the third season communicates really beautifully by the end of the, the finale episode is really great. Um, it's the passage of all that time just makes you see in starker relief, like this, like still object at the center of it all, which is Elizabeth and everyone who passes p- by her and through her, you know, through, through rooms around her and people she meets and whose lives she affects. And then they kind of disappear. They die. They get voted out of office. They move on and go to school and university and whatever. Like, and yet there, she's just there the whole time in these dim rooms, just like she like becomes like a tree, you know? And I think that that's a really interesting character study even if it means that it's really passive, you know, um, it's just like an interesting way to look at like what that actually would feel like to be, you know, this person who just basically just divested themselves of anything beyond like duty. And the crown for me is this weird suspension of disbelief. They have so much money to throw at production value, but at the same time you have to let go kind of like what time means. It's (laughs) weird to me that we're jumping ahead to these characters who look nothing like the characters who are playing, uh, these actors who look nothing like the actors who were playing the characters just three years prior. You know, it's weird seeing Olivia Coleman play uh, Queen Elizabeth and she has brown eyes. Like, they didn't switch that up. I kind of got over that. I was really uh, antsy about it at first. And then there's something about just, like, how they are the essence of those characters. Like, Helen Bonham Carter, I think, in particular, felt like such a, a new interpretation of Margaret, but still Margaret. I kind of enjoyed that switch up after a while. I feel like Helena Bonham Carter was put on this earth to play Princess Margaret. <laughs> 
Perfect. All right. Well, when you when we come back, you will hear us talking all about Princess Margaret and Hello Bonnet Carter. Um, until then, where can folks find you, Katie Rich? Uh, I'm on VanityFair.com, mostly editing behind the scenes, and I'm on Twitter at Katie Rich. Richard Lawson. Well, when I'm not trying to fall in love on a gay sheep farm in Northern <laughs> England, I'm tweeting at Rylas and writing again at VF.com. And Julie Miller. Um, I'm on Twitter at Julie W. Miller and, you know, VF.com. Uh, please do go read all of Julie's uh, The Crown stuff. It, it, it will just enhance your viewing experience. You can find me at Joe Wrote This, and we will see you for the rest of The Crown. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, the New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Mm-hmm.